Romans 6. We are uh, continuing to dig into deep waters. Thank you to Tony for uh, preaching in my absence last week and for letting our family get away and, and just hang out with each other. And again, as John read, we've shown in Romans 5 that God's gracious gift offering of Christ is our propitiation, as our satisfactory payment of our sin, for our sin. And when this offer is received through faith, when it is applied to your life through faith, this brings a person into a new relationship with God through Christ. And we saw that a person goes from wrath to love. A person is transferred from enemy to a new relationship of son-daughter. A person is transferred in the old realm of being alienated to God because of their sin, and now they're reconciled to God through Christ because their sin has been forgiven. And more than anything else, what we saw is that we have to understand that salvation is being freed from the wrath of God due our sin. We saw that in Romans 5, 9. We are freed, we are saved, if you will, from the wrath of God that was due our sin. That's how serious our sin was. It was worthy of wrath. We were enemies. And, 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 I'm, and I'm certain that in our, in our depravity, in our, in our, we are so utterly sinful that we don't really understand how utterly sinful we are. We don't understand the depth of it. And we struggle even when we think about that. The wrath of God due your sin. But we'll see it in Romans 8. Paul says, for now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, guess what that means? One millisecond before you were saved, guess what rested on you? The condemnation of God. God has freed us. He, he, as we saw, in, unlike any other God, I was thinking as Daniel saying this morning, I was thinking about Isaiah 40, verse 18. There is none like you. There's no other, no other God that is going to make the offering that he demanded. God made the offering that he demanded for your sin to be forgiven. That's an astounding thought. That God himself would make the necessary propitiation, the necessary payment for the wrath that was justly due you and me because of our sin, that God would make that payment himself on your behalf. And that's what Paul has been getting at. Again, he talks about that. We've read it time and time again in 2 Corinthians 5, that, that God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God. And what we saw last week through Tony's teaching as he opened up Romans 5 is that verse 18, through one transgression, then as through one transgression, 518, there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through the one act of righteousness, there resulted sanctification of life to all men. You see what Paul is doing there. Just as through Adam, sin entered. Now through Christ, salvation has entered. And, and Paul is making that very clear. Through our union, God, we are united with Adam. And in that, un, in that union, it brings death. And yet, through Christ, we have been unified. We, there's a, we can now be made a union with God through Christ. And that union brings life. And Paul is comparing these. And what he says in culmination there in 520 is, The law came so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The, the abundant grace of God has overwhelmed sin. Where sin once reigned in your life, believer, in my life, grace now trumps. Just as through the one act of disobedience, all became, all were made unrighteous. They were sinners. Now through one act, whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord can be rightly forgiven. And that was the whole point 
of bringing Adam into the conversation is to show that God's grace is the foundation for our relationship. It's to make the abundant grace of God known, crystal clear. We are condemned in Adam because his sin is credited to us, but we are justified through Christ and his righteousness when his righteousness is credited to us. Grace trumps sin. That's the point. That's the status change that, again, I, I want to talk about this as we ramp up, and we may not get to the whole sermon today, just um, there, there's just so much here. But that's the status change that we've got to get in our minds that I feel like we fall so short of, that I feel like the gospel that so many have propagated and preached in America has fallen short of. The status change. That, that judicially you have been declared righteous. If you are trusting in Christ judicially, you have been declared righteous. Adopted. Redeemed. Assured that the wrath of God will not fall on you in that last day of judgment. Gra grasp that in your mind. You, you, this is what Paul says it in 2 Corinthians. He says that you are a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, you are a new creation. Grasp that. Behold, the old things have passed away. The new things have come. You don't just live. This is not just live as we always lived and just tack on salvation. It's not like in Monopoly where you get a get-out-of-jail-free card, you just go on playing and you say, hey, if I ever end up in jail, I'll just flash this card. And That's, that's, not, that's not Christianity. God didn't save you just so you can now live for yourself without the consequences. He didn't redeem you to live for yourself and to live in sin without the penalty of sin. He's freed us, changed our status, adopted us so that we don't have to obey sin any longer. Namely, that we can obey Him because before we couldn't. We'll get there eventually, but in Romans 8, he says in Romans 8, 6, For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it, Listen, for it does not subject itself to the law of God for it is not even able to do so. You, you couldn't obey God as a sinner, as an unredeemed sinner. You couldn't. In God saving you, He has now given you the power to obey Him, to follow, to, to put sin out of your life. And what Paul is getting at here in Romans 6 is, believer, grasp this new status. Grasp the new realm in which you exist. The new identity, the new, the new creation. And what Paul says is, is that status change, what he gets at here is, what does that have to do with my life right now? And what Paul says is everything. It has everything to do with how you live right now. This is not just tack on salvation and keep living as we've always lived. That's the problem. That's how many of us live. That's how many Christians live. Oh, I prayed a prayer. I walked an aisle with no relevance to how they're living. No relevance. If Christ was proved, I, I, I always think, I always go back to 1 Corinthians 15, and Paul says if, if, Christ's, if it was proven that Christ was not resurrected, our lives are to be most pitied. Can you say that? Think about this. What about your life would look foolish if Christ had not been resurrected? If this whole thing was proven to be a sham, what if your life would look foolish? How would your life really be different? Would it simply be back? You wouldn't have, would it simply be, oh, well, I guess I just don't have to get up on Sundays and come to worship? What, what if your life would be different? What of your life, believer? The only answer is, the, if someone said, why do you live like that? The only answer is Christ. 
The answer is because I've been adopted by God, because I'm a child of God. The answer is because I've been declared righteous, judicially declared righteous. The question becomes, does it affect you how you work? Does your redeemed status affect how you go to work every day? Does your redeemed status affect how you handle your marriage every day? Does your redeemed status affect the way you raise your children? Does your redeemed status affect the way, what you expect of them? Does your redeemed status affect the way you handle your money? That's what Paul's getting at. Does your redeemed status affect what you listen to, how you dress, what you watch? That's what Paul's saying. Everything about our lives is to be different. Why? Because we've been redeemed. Because we've been transferred from the domain of darkness into the glorious, marvelous kingdom of light. You don't have to obey sin, believer. That's what Paul's getting at. The reality is, as redeemed believers, we ought to hate sin. That's the problem. Hate it. And, and, and you see there on your main point. Paul is saying everything about our lives is different. And the main point Paul is going to get at here in Romans 6 is this. Christ's substitutionary death, when applied to your life through faith, not only frees you from the penalty of sin, but it frees you from the power of sin, transferring us to a new realm in which we exist. It's not just the penalty. You have the power as I say that, forgive me, my mind goes back to a song back in the 80s and 90s. I've got the power. And anyway, forgive me. Exactly. You know, I, I don't know why Christian stations don't play that song. We adopt all kinds of other songs that ain't really Christian. Put that one in there. I've got the power. I'll sing it for you at the next Married for Life. Anyone who is at last married life understands that reference. So, And with that, the church just split. Anyway, sorry, sorry. That's just... Again, the depravity of our minds. There's too much in there. Too much in there. I'll be thinking about that the whole time I'm preaching now. I've got the power. Sorry. But listen, what Paul shows us here in Romans 6 is hugely important. And it is totally, totally misunderstood today. And, and, and if, if I can be put some weight on the bar and just be really vulnerable. I, 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 my fear is that in America especially, we have shared a gospel for generations that has totally negated the call for discipleship. And, and what we see is, is proof. We have a lot of people who, will, who have prayed a prayer We've got a lot of people who have walked an aisle. And we have a lot of people who, those same people who, that prayer and that walking that aisle has very little to no impact on their life on a daily basis. And we've done that to ourselves. We've dumbed down Christianity to the lowest Christian denominator. Just pray a prayer. Just repeat a prayer. Walk down an aisle. What happened to follow me? What happened to take up your cross daily and follow me? What, about, what happened to lordship? What about dying to self, living for the glory of God? What happened to, to go, go there for, listen what, even Matthew 28, 19, you know what it says? It says, go there and make disciples, not converts. He says, go there and make disciples. Raise up a bunch of people that follow me no matter the cost. Raise up a bunch of people that are willing to pay the price. We've adopted this one-time decision mentality, again, that totally destroys the need for discipleship. Why do I need to come to church? Why do I need to read my Bible? Why do I need to grow up in respects to godliness? I've already prayed the prayer. I got the ticket. 
Is that all? Is that why Christ died? That, that's not the gospel that I see in this word. Pray a prayer and go on your way. Walk an aisle, go on your way. No connection, no little to no connection of our entire lives. Little to no connection of a, of a desire for Christ's likeness. Little to no connection to conforming your life to, to, the, to the image of our Savior. Little to no connection on how that de- makes demands on every area of our lives. Little thought on a daily basis to Christ and our fellowship. That, that's Christianity in America. No grasp, no grasp of our union that Paul talks about. I mean, think about this, and this is why marriage is such a big deal. Imagine, imagine if your spouse, if you got married, and then you just went back to living how you always lived the day before you got married. How would you feel? When you got married, there was an expectation that everything about your life changed. Listen, total new realm. As you once lived as a single person, now you live as a married person. And, and I think that's why the Bible, why God so wisely uses marriage time and time again, because it's a very clear picture. You, you would never go up to your spouse and they said, you know, why don't you, why, why, who cares if I live at home with you and help pay the bills and whatever? I, I vowed, I said a vow. Nobody would be okay with that. Nobody would be okay with a spouse that didn't conform their lives, seek to conform their lives to to what they vowed on the wedding day. The union. When you got married, what does the Bible say? You were no longer one flesh, two flesh, but you are now one flesh. Total new creation. And, and then you go living in light of that. Living in light of who you are. And, and, and again, the scary, the scary reality of what Paul says here in Romans 6, and you see it immediately in verse 1, and we'll get to it, but I'm ramping up, and the, the ramp up is almost a sermon in itself, and forgive me, but, but I want to set the stage, because it's going to take Paul three chapters to answer the question that he asks, that he asks in, cha- in verse 1. Of Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that may, may, grace may increase? May it never be. How, he, we, how, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? Paul's going to take three chapters to answer that question. Three chapters. Why? Because the reality is this. The, God's grace can be misunderstood and worse yet abused. Thinking that we can take the the yoke the the we'll take the salvation without the yoke of discipleship. I'll take this, but not that, like a buffet style. I'll take your salvation. I don't want all this lordship stuff. I'm not going to surrender to how I handle my marriage to you. I'm not going to surrender my money to you. I'm not going to surrender my time to you. I'm not going to surrender my thoughts to you. I'm not going to do any of that. When it's convenient, I'll do it. But when it's not convenient, I'm not doing it. That's not biblical Christianity. That's a misunderstanding at the very least. And I'm not saying we get saved, we'll deal with this as well and become perfect automatically. But there's a pursuit of godliness. That's called discipleship. Even 1 Thessalonians 4. You want to know what the will of God is? Go to 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. This is the will of God. You know what he says? Your, he answers his own question, your sanctification. And he goes on to explain what that is. Ironically, the first thing he says is that you abstain from sexual immorality. He goes on and lists of things. This is the will of God. Sanctification. And, and listen, I'll, it's the same thing that Jesus dealt with in John 6. Hey, we'll take the loaves, but this eating of flesh and drinking of blood and taking up your cross daily, I don't know about all that. And listen, maybe we can, but not without great cost. Not only for your life, but the gospel. And at the very least, missing out on what Paul talks about 
in Philippians 3 of abiding, of knowing. Paul says, I, for the sake of knowing you, God, I have forsaken all things. Why did Paul forsake all things? Because he had found something better. Why did Paul lay it all down? Because he had found something better. And Paul's point here in chapter 6 is to show that, listen, his gospel, this gospel that's by grace through faith, that is apart from the law, does not lead to moral anarchy. It does not lead to living however you want to live and simply claim the gospel. And what he says is, in contrast, this gospel that I'm telling you actually leads to the putting away of sin in your life. And it actually gives you the power to do it. A power, again, that the law never provided. The, and, and again, that's 6, 7, and 8. That sin is not your master, chapter 6. In chapter 7, he says the law cannot do what the power of God can do. The law simply exposes it. And in verse chapter 8, he gets into where does this power come from? He's going to start answering questions. The power comes from the Spirit. 8, 12, walk by the Spirit. And you will what? Not gratify the desires of the flesh. How do we put sin out of our lives? Walking by the Spirit. It's not walking by the flesh. It's letting the Word of God richly dwell within us. It's fighting that battle of us not being totally yet who we are. That already not yet tension. And again, Paul is going to, for three chapters, he's going to answer the question, why a believer hates sin? Why a believer will not go on continually sinning willy-nilly? Three chapters he's going to take to unwrap that. And, and here's what we have to grasp. You see it on your handout. That it, it's this, that justification, and again, I put the definition there for us to remind ourselves, the acquittal from the guilt of our sin, and sanctification, which is deliverance from sin and growth in Christ's likeness, it's the putting away of sin and the putting on of Christ's likeness, must never be confused as they are distinct, but they also must never be separated. They're two sides of the same coin, if you will. You were saved in order to be sanctified. You were saved in order to reflect the image of your God. Back to the original creation of man. We were created to represent God, to be little gods, if you will, running around representing our God. That's what we were saved for. That's what sanctification does. The putting away of sin and all the things that do not represent God and the putting on of things that do represent our God. This is 1 Peter 2, we saw it. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk. Why? So that by it you may what? Grow up in respect to your salvation. That's sanctification. Listen, listen to the Westminster Larger Catechism. I know that's old school, but some still use catechisms. And if you don't know what a catechism is, let's, well, a catechism is, let, a catechism is. Catechism is. I don't, forgive me if that said something. Anyway, what the Westminster Catechism, listen to what it says. In justification, sin is pardoned. In sanctification, sin is subdued. Think about that. In justification, you are declared righteous. Your sin has been pardoned. Now what? Subdue sin. Put away sin. Practically put sin out of your life. Why? Because as we'll see in Romans 6, you died to it. You're dead. Literally in my mind, and I didn't do this, thankfully, but I thought about it. If you, you know, it would be, it would be like, if we brought a dead animal and laid it here in the front of the aisle, would you want anything to do with it? That's sin now. That's, that's sin in my life. I'm dead. To, it's dead to me. Put it away. In, in Romans 5, Paul says that, that sin is seen as a power or a master, he shows us unbreakable on our own power. Yet, for those who are in Christ, what Paul is saying is the power to sin has been broken. You have the power, believer, to not sin. And in this, we are set free. Sin is no longer to be our master. We are freed 
from sin. We are not freed to sin. In Christ, we have been freed from sin. We haven't been freed to sin without penalty. That's not the point. We are freed from sin. And you see it on your hand out there. Through faith in the gospel, believers have been set free from sin in order to be enslaved to God. We simply changed masters. Where you once, before Christ, were enslaved to sin, listen, now you're enslaved to God. It wasn't like he just opened the prison doors and said, hey, run wild and free and I hope it works out for you. But you don't have to reside in this cage anymore. No, he opened the prison doors, took you by the hand, and he opened up a door in his cast, in his kingdom and said, here's where you now dwell. And I will take care of you. And, and think about this illustration. Imagine, imagine if, if, you left, if you left Tampa today and you went and lived, let's say, in France. All right? Everything about your life would change, right? You wouldn't move to France and then expect everything that happened in America to be taken to France and say, why aren't these people over here living like they do in America? Because you're not in America. There's a new culture, there's a new language, new customs, new food. And you'd have to get used to that in France, right? In, in, a, in a very real way, that's sanctification. Believer, you dwell in a new kingdom. You've been adopted by a father who loves you. Sanctification is understanding the culture of this new kingdom, and applying that to your life and living it out by faith. And see the connection. One flows into the other. You've been justified in order to be sanctified, in order to represent your king, to live for the glory of God. So I say all that to try to help us grasp what we're going to see in, in Romans 6, and we'll probably, like I said, only get to the first point here. But, but look, at, look at verses 1 and 2. Again, Paul is answering the question, what now? I've been, I've been put in a new realm. No longer in the realm of Adam as a believer. I'm in the realm of Christ. The realm over here was ruled by sin and death and condemnation. This new realm that I live in in Christ is ruled by life and, and freedom and in Christ and righteousness and glory of God. Over here in the old realm, self-reigned. Over here, the glory of God reigned. What now? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. How? Here it is. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Here's the crazy statement that Paul makes. Dead men don't sin. Dead men don't sin. Dead women don't sin. That's the question that Paul's going to unpack for three chapters. Because as soon as I say that, you're, here's what you're thinking. I, I sin. So what's the issue? That's what Paul's going to unpack. And look on your handout, look on your handout for the first point. We're going to try to unpack this with him and in a way that we understand it. In Christ, we no longer belong to the realm of Adam, that of sin and death, but rather we exist in a new realm, that of righteousness, and thus we are to live out our lives from the new realm in which we exist. We live in a new realm. What Paul is saying here is, believer, you've, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have got to see yourself differently. You've got to see everything about your life differently. That your life now is to be lived to the glory of God. That your life is not your own, he says in 1 Corinthians 6, in verse 19, or do you not know that you have been bought with a price? Therefore, you know what it says? Therefore. Glorify God in your body. That's exactly the same thing that Paul is saying here. Go to 2 Corinthians 5. 
Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old things have passed away, the new things have come. That's exactly what Paul is saying right here. In Colossians 1, 12 and 13 and 14, you have been rescued from the domain of darkness. You have been transferred in the glorious realm of light. Therefore, live in light of that. That's exactly what Paul is saying right here. We've got to learn to see ourselves differently. And this new relationship creates a new, with, with God, creates a new relationship to sin, a new relationship to the law, a new relationship to everything. And in that sense, it is inconceivable to Paul that a believer would, would enjoy living in sin. Inconceivable. Inconceivable that a believer would treat sin lightly. You're dead to it. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? And what Paul is saying in Romans 6 builds off of 5. That's why it was so important what Tony shared last week, especially verses 20 and 21. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that, listen, so that, as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life. Paul is showing here, again, this is why the gospel is the power of salvation to all who believe, Romans 1, 16 and 17. In chapter 5, it was the power over trials. It was the power over the wrath of God. It was the power even over in death. And in chapters in 6 and 7, it's the power over sin. In chapter 6, in chapter 7, it's the power over the law. And then even in chapter 8, it's the power to live in light of our new creation. The putting away of that sin. And again, verse 1 connects to 520. God's grace triumphs all. And it's a be- it's, this is Paul's whole point. God never abandons his people. But what does this grace lead to in a believer's life? What does grace produce? Does it it produce casualness towards sin? Or does it produce a power to live towards holiness? And Paul says, no way, no how. Literally in the Greek, the strongest language he could ever use. And he says, by no means. This grace does not create a people who are casual towards their sin. And and what Paul does here is he, because he's a great teacher, he's cutting the legs out of his opponents. We know from Romans 3, verses 7 and 8, that his gospel got attacked. Go back to 3, 7 and 8. This gospel was misunderstood. Again, But if through my lie the truth of God abounded for to his glory, why am I being judged as a sinner? And why not say as we are slanderously, here it is, being reported as saying, and as some claim we say, listen, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. You see the lies about Paul's gospel? Oh, then we just live however we want to live. You take away the law? People are going to live however they want to live. Paul says, nope, won't happen. Won't happen. And Paul in, in chapter 6 takes back up the answering of his critics, the answering even on behalf of the students, about, on behalf of the people. Why, Paul? Why, will, why won't not having the law create a people that just live however you want to live? And Paul answers the question, and the conclusion, you see it on a handout, the conclusion that Paul seeks to bring them to is that the gospel does not lead a person to freely sin, but actually frees a person from the power of sin into a new way of life. Why doesn't a a believer just sin willy-nilly? Because they've been transferred to a new realm and they have a new power. And as we'll get into it in Romans 8, not power of things written on a letter or on a stone, but the power of the Spirit. And that power, listen, that sanctification, it's growing up into that power. I mean, this is Colossians 3, 16 and 17. Let the word of God richly dwell within you. 
That's power. It's Ephesians 5.18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. That word filling literally means controlled. That's sanctification. Growing up, allowing the Spirit of God, growing up in your salvation, allowing the Spirit of God to control you. Paul says, listen, you're, you're misunderstanding it. You're not understanding it if you think that. Again, Paul had critics. And their critics, again, said this, lawlessness always leads to sin. Grace always leads to immorality. Not only some sinning, but rampant sinning. That has always been the objection. And Paul says that's, that without the law, they're saying, hey, without the law, Paul, people will just sin all the more. And Paul says, nope, wrong conclusion. Wrong conclusion about God's grace. And in contrast, look at what Paul does say. You see it in your handout. Paul says that only a true understanding of God's grace and its power can crush and defeat sin in our lives. Why do you not want to sin anymore as a believer? Because you have a new master. And you have a new master that loves you and a new master that takes care of you. It is a love for God that supersedes your love for sin. It is a love for God that enables you to put the the love over here, away. Again, like when you get, got married, why do you forsake all the women? Because it doesn't glorify your spouse. You've united yourself to one woman or one man. Why do you forsake all others? Because it's contrary to the one you married. That's why you do it. You put all those away, and you forsake all of those for the love of one. Listen, is it possible that we as believers can slip and abuse grace? Absolutely. Can we become complacent about our sin? Absolutely. But what Paul gets at, at the source of this, you see it on handout, is it's a misunderstanding of grace. It may be a misunderstanding even of the gospel. Because the important thing to notice here is Paul does not back down from his gospel. You know what Paul doesn't say here? Oh, well, you misunderstood this justification thing. You know, now you've got to do all this stuff, and now you, you, you misunderstood. I, I need to back down. It's, it's not 100% God's doing in salvation and 0% yours. It's, it's like a 75-25. I, I think you misunderstood me. Notice that's not what Paul does. Paul does not back down from his gospel by justification through faith alone. He does not back down from that. He doesn't back down from grace. His gospel is a gospel of grace. It is a gospel of gifted righteousness apart from the law. Paul doesn't say, oh, well, you know, you didn't really die to the law. We need to bring the law back now that you got this understanding. That's not what he says. He does not back down. Why? The gospel isn't the issue. It's your understanding of the gospel that's the issue. Grace is not the issue. It's your misunderstanding of grace that's the issue. It's the fact that we still need to grow up. And again, that's where sanctification comes into play. Because we're babies. We're newborn babies. That's what Peter says again in verse 2. Like newborn babies. When you were born again as a Christian, you were a baby. That's what Paul speaks to in 1 Corinthians 3 and Hebrews 5. He says, by now many of you ought to be teachers of the law, but you still need milk. I came to give you meat, but you still need milk. That may be the case for some of us in here. You've been, a, you've been a Christian so long, you ought to be teaching. You ought to be leading others. And instead, you still need to enter elemental things. Milk, you're still on a bottle. Many people in here have been a Christian for a long, long time. And, 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 you're, and we're still sitting in the nest like this. I'm just waiting for Mama Bird to drop food in our mouths time and time and time again. When you ought to be flying out there, studying the Word all week for yourselves, and you ought to be bringing the meat to a, new, to a newborn baby Christians yourself. But you haven't grown up. Because again, we've propagated a gospel that totally doesn't need salvation, sanctification. We need salvation. Doesn't need sanctification. And we think we're okay. Because we've been told erroneously that we're okay. 
That's not the end of salvation. It's to grow up. To feed others. To grow up mainly to put away sin. So that you, again, as we see in Romans 8, that we would reflect, we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's our goal. Our, uh, one day you and I will put on glorified bodies. In the meantime, we are to progressively seek that which one day we will perfectly be. That makes sense? That's the end. Glorified body. Perfect. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to pursue it. Just as exactly what Paul said in Philippians 3. Not that I have already obtained perfection, but what? I press on. I seek it. And I lay aside anything that hinders me. Why? For the goal of knowing Christ. The goal of being intimately acquainted, intimately known, and intimately known by Christ. I lay aside everything. All the things that once were to my credit, I count them as dung, literally he says, to, compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ. That I may be found in Him and in the likeness. That's the understanding of grace. And, and that's what Paul says in verse 2. You're dead to sin, believer. Dead. Hate it. Hate it. Why, Chris? Hate it because it's, in, it's, in, it's not in conformity to who you are in Christ. Hate it, hate it, think about this, hate it in the way wives, hate it in the way you would expect your husband to hate all other women in compared to you. Do we hate sin that way? Do, do, we, see, do we see sin as, as offensive to God? because of who we are in Christ and the payment He made, as you would as a man or a woman hitting on your spouse? Do we hate it that way? Partly because we don't understand who we are in Christ. Partly because we've been okay just being babies in Christ. Partly because we've shared a gospel with people, and maybe we've even taken a gospel that totally negated the need for, for sanctification. And that's Paul's whole point here. Being dead, go down to verse 6. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. Why? In order that our body of sin would be done away with. Why? So that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who died is freed from sin. Go to verse 11. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Go to verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you may obey its lusts. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of righteousness, but rather present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Hate your sin. Hate it because of the offensiveness it is to your Savior. Hate it because it doesn't represent who you are in the realm you live in. I mean, I, I thought about this again in these illustrations. They may be dumb or whatever, but, you know, my per we sat by the beach so many days, I'm like, my mind's like, I got to get my mind on something else. And my personality is I need stuff to do. And I'm all I, I sat there thinking about illustrations for the sermon. I listened and listened and listened. And you think about this. Think about this illustration. Suppose you were dating one girl. And not that anybody carries wallets anymore, but suppose you had you put her picture in your wallet. Nobody does that anymore, but you know, maybe you had her picture on the dashboard in the car. You know, you, you had her number on your favorites so you didn't get charged for all those phone call minutes. And you talked to her on the phone and Suppose you break up with that girl and begin dating a new girl. What would you do with all those pictures? Would you keep them up? 
Probably not. What would you think if you got in the car with your new boy, boyfriend and you looked over and there's another girl on the dash? Well, what's that doing there? Oh, that's the girl I used to date. Okay. We laugh. What, what do you think it says about our Savior? What do you think it does to our Savior to see us running to things that he died to free us from? What do you think it says to our Savior when we find pleasures in things that once wanted to kill us and he gave up his life to die so that we'd be freed from that and yet we run right back to it? Because, again, the Bible pictures our, uni our, un our union with Christ as a marriage. He's our groom. We're the bride. What do you think it's like when we, when we toy around with sin? This is serious business. I, I would argue the church and its influence and its effectiveness in this world is, is, is greatly hindered because we don't take sin seriously. Because as believers, our lives and the lives of our kids look exactly like everybody else's. And, and we're okay with sin. We don't hate our sin the way that we're supposed to hate our sin. And, and again, Paul here is commanding, and you see it in a handout, that believers see themselves, number one, dead to sin. Here's the application. When you walk out of here, see yourself as dead to sin. Train yourself dead to sin. But not only dead to sin, alive to God. You've been joined to another. That we would walk. We'll get to it next week. But look at verse 4. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so that we too might walk in what? Newness of life. Not be, not be forgiven and go back to walking the same way we walked yesterday. New. Newness of life. And again, this is, this is not optional. This is not, oh, well, Chris, you're a pastor. That's seminary type of stuff. No, this is what Paul says is commanded. This is a must for every believer. In light of the new realm in which you exist, in Christ, he says, actively put away sin in your life and live for righteousness. Actively. None, none of this let go and let God. Active. Paul doesn't say, let go and let God deal with immorality. Let go and let God deal with sexual immorality. You know what Paul says? Flee immorality. Flee idolatry. Flee sexual fornication. Flee it. Radically flee it. Be, be like Moses in, in, the, in the castle or the, the, in Pharaoh's home when, when his wife comes after him and Moses, to his own embarrassment, his own hurt, he fled. Flee. This is, huh? A Joseph, what did I say, Moses? Whoever. No, Joseph, sorry, Joseph, sorry. Joseph, thank you for correcting me. That would have bothered me later on. I'd have had to send an email out or something. This moron doesn't even know who Joseph was. You know, the point here, hear me, are we, are we, and we're going to stop here in point one, are we, are our lives marked by a hatred of sin? Ask yourself that. And, and I, I was talking to some guys the other day, and, you know, I, yesterday we, I had, we came home from Marco, and we went to Ellington, and I was, acted stupid, and we had been there way too long, and I hated myself for the whole hour from Ellington. I just wanted to get home. And I thought about that and I was reminded of how in my own life, have there been, do I hate sin? Or do we, do we laugh at sin? 
Worse yes, do we pay to see people sin? Are we entertained by sin? Listen, I, I'm not trying, you, you know my heart here. I, I'm not trying to be some legalistic jerk up here. That's far from it. But we're new creatures, new creatures, new creations in Christ. I have a real grasp on the English language today. We're new creations. Changes everything. Changes how we dress. Listen, that's why we don't, we don't have all these rules about dress and drink and dot, dot, dot. Here, here's what regulates you. The Spirit of God in you regulates that. You see, the problem is so many of us are so immature, the Spirit of God ain't really regulating that. Our self is regulating that. Because we've fed our flesh for so long, and we feed, our, we feed our flesh every single day in what we watch, and what we listen to, and what we read, and then we wonder why the flesh doesn't, why the Spirit isn't crucifying the flesh. Because the flesh is stronger than the Spirit in you. And until we start digging in God's Word, until we start feeding the Spirit, the Spirit is not going to crucify the flesh. We've got to grow up. Grasp who you are, and then the Spirit can crucify the flesh. Whatever one you feed, listen, human nature, whatever one you feed, guess what? That's going to be the one that grows, right? That's going to be the one that dominates the other. Are we a people who actively fight and hate sin? Are we actively seeking to put it out of our lives no matter the cost? That's the question. Do we see ourselves dead to sin? Do we treat sin like we would if there was a dead carcass up here? We would I guarantee you, if I laid a dead deer that got hit by the road, I guarantee you nobody would be on the first six or seven rows. We'd flee it. Do we, are we, because we're dead to that. It's nasty. Do we see sin that way? Are we actively, are we a people who actively pursue righteousness? Do we actively encourage each other to pursue righteousness? You see it on your handout. What Paul pictures here, are we a people who have made a decisive separation from sin because of who we are in Christ? Have you made that choice? Decisive separation. Not in a legalistic way, not running around saying we're better than one another, not expecting me to do what you do and vice versa. No, no. You making a decisive separation from sin and fleeing. That your life will be characterized by slavery to God and not slavery to sin. That, the, that sin would not rule over you. Why? Because it's incongruent with the gospel and it's incongruent with who you are in Christ. It is incongruent. It doesn't measure up. I ask ourselves these questions. In our grow groups, let's, I would pray in our grow groups that we would be real honest and have some real honest conversations. Admit it. Help each other. That's why we do these grow groups. Because every single one of us in here is fighting this battle. Every single one of us is fighting the battle of sin. That's why we meet, Hebrews 10, to encourage one another to continue to fight to be the errands when, when we're the Moses and we can't hold the staff up any longer and we need an Aaron to come alongside of us and hold our arms up so that we can win the battle. That's what we are as a body. That's what these grow groups are. That's what every single one of us in here need. Keep fighting. Keep fighting. 